0: And we'll take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter number 4. <clears throat> we finish our evening discussions that I've been preaching on throughout the year. I'm thankful that next Sunday evening, Brother Edward will preach. And then the following two Sunday evenings, on the 4th and the 11th, Brother Mike will preach. And then uh, we'll have the cantata on the 18th. But I wanted to finish up with this message this evening. It's a passage we know so well. It is a passage directly given to individuals. Paul is giving it to the church, and he's saying to each of the individuals within the church that they themselves should be stewards. But there are principles, and we'll see in an expanded way, our philosophy of stewardship, that was what we'll be studying this evening, And then when I close the message, it will not be too long this evening, when I close the message, Brother Zach will come up, walk us through the budget for this year, uh, talk through uh, the general fund, the missions, and then I will come back and vote on it. I hope, I desperately hope, he can go ahead and get ordained this next year. This might be the last business meeting that I have to run. Because if he's a pastor on staff, I'm just giving him everything. I can say, whew, this is easy. Back to the days when we planted the church, it was like the Wild West. <clears throat> Stewardship Sunday, you don't want to hear that. I'm just kidding, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. I better stick to the Word of God, that keeps me out of trouble. The Bible says in verse number 1, Let a man so account of us, as of the ministers of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found Father, help us tonight as we discuss our faithfulness. We are glad that you are ever faithful. We read that this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. The Lord is faithful. But Lord, tonight we're looking at our faithfulness, our participation in this work together. The managing of the resources of every part of who we are, but in particular tonight, the financial structure of the church. I'm grateful for how many people through the years have participated. Countless, hundreds, perhaps thousands of different individuals through the years have given money to the work of the ministry here. And those thousands of people giving have resulted likely in over a million to two million dollars being given in 14 and a half years. What we do with that money matters. How we steward it and how we manage it it for your glory matters. Help us tonight to see that. Bless in this time and our efforts together, in Jesus' name, amen. We've heard many messages through the years as a church about being good stewards. I believe as a church family, as I look out across the United States of America and New Testament Bible-believing churches, There may not be a better church that has focused on the idea of individual or the individual responsibility to participate and practice good stewardship. Do I think that we are 100% efficient in every home? Of course not. Jessica and I are not 100% efficient in our home, in our stewardship. There are times where we waste money and we shouldn't. But the key is not whether we make mistakes, it's whether we're faithful in the task of what God's called us to. There are no perfect homes when it comes to stewardship, and there are no perfect churches when it comes to stewardship. What we are desiring to do is to pursue, as ministers of Christ, that standard of being faithful regularly. We do, however, in this church family, have a host of homes that understand the concept of stewardship. And in their own ways, they have begun, you have begun, to engage in the principles that you know. In other words, you're not hearers only. You are doers of the Word. That is a blessing. It's an encouragement. It's a joy to my heart as a pastor. Your partnership in the congregational stewardship is what we've come to discuss this evening. And so, those that don't like it just went, Oh. Those that love math and numbers and accounting just went, ooh, and the rest of us are pretty, pretty ambivalent to the whole thing. But it is important for each of us to understand this philosophy of stewardship. In our Bluegrass 101 class, we discussed the idea of partnering together as a body, but then also as a body, partnering with others. Part of our stewardship is taking care of the missionary families that we've agreed to support for the amounts of money that we've taken them on for. We also talked in our 101 class often of fellowship, what it means to participate together, not just partnering, but actually engaging in the participation of it. So I put, if you have your notes this evening, our philosophy of stewardship. It's at the very bottom. We'll revisit it at the end, just before Zach comes. But simply to say, stewardship is believing God will provide. We then budget what is spent balance what is not, and are benevolent with the surplus. That's our philosophy. You say, have you always had it worded that way? No, but we certainly have always thought this way. There is a process to how we do what we do here. So it brings then forward the question of what do those statements in that philosophy mean? Let's look first at believing God for the income. We have a lot of ring up here tonight, Scott. I don't know. I feel like I'm yelling at myself. And if I'm yelling at myself, I feel like I'm yelling at you. I can't talk any slower or any lower either, so I'm not sure why we got the echo tonight, but we do. Believing God for the income means that the church operates as the storehouse of the things that the people give to the Lord. I was watching the football games today. I don't even know what they stand for, but there is a commercial at the football games now about Jesus if He lived today. And the website, I don't even know if I can encourage it, but the website, whatever it is, is about God getting us. I don't know if they're good or if they're bad. What I'm simply saying is there's a lot of ministries out there. There's a lot of works out there. There's a lot of things that people engage that are out there that will call to you or yearn in your heart for you to give to. They'll come to you and say, you should give to this. And I ask then, why should you give to the church? Have you ever stopped and wondered that? I mean, why shouldn't I just give all of my money to an addiction rehab center? They are good and needed in our culture today. Why shouldn't I just give all of my money to an orphanage? After all, these people are doing good for children. Why is it that we should take of our resources, meaning specifically our financial resources, and our element of time that we have been giving or have been given by God, why should we invest those in the local church? Of course, we're told in Acts chapter number 17 and verse 26 that Christ shed His blood for the church, and thus there is an importance of priority in it. The church operates in the New Testament age as the storehouse of the things that people will give to the Lord. The storehouse concept is built into the law. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says there, Will a man rob God? That's a wonderful text, by the way. If you go to the beginning of chapter 3 of Malachi, the locusts are eating them up. They are under judgment. They're being punished. And Malachi asks the several questions, but one of the questions that he asks is Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. That word storehouse is very important there. There was a central location at the temple, before that with the tabernacle, where they would bring their tithes to the tribe of Levi, and they would lay them in store because everybody didn't bring everything every week as they ought to. There was a storehouse that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. If you want God's blessings, then you better obey God. You say, well, that has to do with money. It has to do with every area of your life. We can rob God of the affection and the attention that He deserves. Giving back to God is traced all the way back to Adam and Eve when they offered a sacrifice of their flock in Genesis chapter 4. As I mentioned in the preaching this morning, it comes out again this evening, Cain in that, missed the point in that offering while Abel understood what the expectation was. Abraham was willing to tithe to Melchizedek and even offer his whole future By being willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, God stopped him when Abraham, not God, saw just how willing he was to give of himself to God. God already knew how far Abraham would go. He understood the future and could see it. It was that God wanted Abraham to see how far Abraham could go in trusting God. God protected him. But Abraham was willing to sacrifice everything for his God. It is the law then that introduced giving to support the work and workers of God. The people were to give a tenth of their increase to support the tribe of Levi, and the tribe of Levi was to provide for the priestly order from their ranks. This is the expectation of God for his people even today, that they would care for his work as much as he does. Giving to God is an important element. God gives to us so that we might give to Him. He provides all things so that we might provide something in return to Him. It's why we give. This didn't change with the establishment of the local church. In fact, the store has concept carries through to the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. The very same principle, the very same concept, as God hath prospered him. That there be no gathering when I come. Have you noticed since the pandemic, we don't pass offering plates? Some of you said, no, I haven't noticed it at all. The services flow so wonderfully well. We actually come in here to worship, and we're not distracted. We put the announcements first so we can get Edward and his comic relief done and out of the way. (laughs) I'm teasing. It's Sunday night. I can. We can have the information pass. That's the right way, right, brother? I think that's the appropriate way I should say it. We can welcome our guests, but then we move right into worship. Because when you come to church on a Sunday morning out of a world that is filled with sin, you want to spend time with God and with others who want to spend time with God. It's what we come here for. Paul says this to them very clearly. He says, listen, there doesn't need to be any gathering when I come. The offering plates sit out in the lobby. Do you know since we've put the offering plates in the lobby, giving has nominally increased? Now, Zach will get up here and show you numbers that tithes and offerings are where they are and where they are. I don't know where they are. I know generally where they are. But the point is, we haven't suffered because we put offering plates out there. Passing it in front of you, clink, 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 putting your change in and passing it down or your envelope in is not something that we've missed. And I appreciate you for that because you've understood that your obligation, your duty, your responsibility in giving back to the Lord is beyond obligation or mandate, it's of opportunity and with cheerfulness. It is from this continuation in 1 Corinthians chapter number 16 that we learn to give not only of the tithe in the New Testament, but also by grace. God's expectation is that to whom much is given, much shall be required. Paul admonished, or we might say, counseled through teaching Timothy in this very truth at the end of his first pastoral letter. He says this in First Timothy chapter six, verses seventeen through nineteen: Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to uh, to enjoy. Notice what he says that he is charging them in: that they do good. That phrase "do good" means benevolence that they are benevolent with what they have, that they be rich in what? Good works, that they are ready to distribute. That means to provide for needs and to give of themselves or away from themselves. To distribute means to have it leave your shores. Willing to communicate. Notice the very next phrase, laying up in store For themselves, in this instance, when you lay in store by giving to God and His work, you are laying in store for yourself in heaven. A good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Biblically, God will provide the church its income by the Spirit of God's continual working in the hearts of believers to support the work of God on earth. That's why the book of Proverbs says this, a passage we know so well. Honor the Lord with thy substance in Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. And with the first fruits of all thine increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. We as a church have always believed that God will bring the income in, whatever the income is. We don't put thermometers on the wall. We don't do building programs with bricks that you can fill in. None of those things are evil, but those things are gimmicky at best, and they're not biblical. We have done in the past Joash's chest offering where you can come and you can give a sacrificial offering, but even in those, they were seasonal or for a specific time for the first building fund we ever established here. If you think about it, church is the craziest business model ever made. It's not a business, but as the man that trained me for the ministry told me, church is always a family business. The minute you forget it's a family, it'll, it'll hurt you, and the minute you forget it's a business, it'll hurt you. And I thought, that's good wisdom, and it still to this day is good wisdom. Your family, but we need to run this place like it is a business, or we will not have a place to meet in for very long. The reason I say that church is the craziest business model ever made is that the support and sustaining of the work depends on voluntary gifts from various sources. That's the church. That's who we are. That's what we do. Bluegrass has always had sufficient funds to do the work because God has always moved the hearts of the membership to give generously and graciously back to Him. Many families have honored the Lord with their substance, and their barns have been filled with plenty. The last phrase of Proverbs 3 and verse 10 might be the greatest part of that passage where it says the presses will burst out with what kind of wine? New wine." It tells me that when I'm faithful in honoring the Lord with my substance, both in giving back to Him and how I personally steward the 90% or so that I keep, when I do it in a God-honoring way, there will always be new resources that come in. Living by biblical principles of stewardship will always yield increase in the life of the individual who does it. The wine is not old, it's not stale, it's not stagnant or fermenting. It is new and living. It is fresh as a resource because God constantly provides for them who honor Him. It is a great joy every year we ask Mark Woods never to tell us who gives what, but we always ask him to tell us how many people are giving. This year, we have had over 109 giving units who have given multiple times in the year. Now, stop and think about that. That's an amazing thing. We started with a handful of faithful families in 2008. And when I say a handful, I literally mean eight, (laughs) right? It's two handfuls. And now we have 109 giving units. I don't know what those giving units are uh, comprised of. That may be children whose parents are teaching them to give back to the Lord $1 a week, which, in the case of Jessica and I, is. God bless Brother Mark. Every time my kids start putting tithes in in the white envelopes because of their allowance or the money they make, he comes and says, Pastor, do you want to get an envelope system for them? And I say, I don't know. It's your headache. <laughs> You're going to get a dollar or a dollar 25 from them each week. It's yours to account for. And yes, I get a giving statement for each of the boys. In other words, that may be who it is of the 109, but it also may be new Christians who are learning to give back to the Lord just a couple times each year. It may be young families who give as they can to the Lord. It may be established families who have given and will continue to give of their abundance to the Lord. Great or small in amount, the act of faithfully giving back to the Lord is what God desires. And so long as we are filled with a membership that wants to give back to the Lord, we will always be fine. It is through this that God has chosen to work. And listen, I get it. I really do. I've been told that pastors don't need to tithe. I have honestly been in pastors' meetings and been taught that. Thankfully, my pastor in the church I came from did not believe that. The group that formed this are well-meaning men, and some are even well-read. And they say, well, hey, the tribe of Levi did not have to tithe, and thus the pastors in the church don't need to tithe. That may be so for them to believe, but Jessica and I have always chosen to tithe and have given beyond the tithe in our missions. And I encourage you to do the same thing as well. So like you, I can understand what I might do with that six or ten or fifteen thousand extra dollars a year. I might not have to drive a car that's so old. Everybody has to struggle with this in the sense of my temporal fleshly needs pull at what I know is an eternal substance that we spoke of this morning in Hebrews 10. Obedience to God through giving is an eternal blessing and reward. Ideas of what we might do with the money that we have given, those ideas are endless and so is the pit that would suck that money up. There's no telling what reward that widow that Jesus speaks of in the gospel might have because she gave back in worship to God there at that temple. In other words, if you can give little, give little. If you can give lots, give lots. Give to your power, as the Bible says of the churches of Macedonia, and if you're able, give beyond. But give in good stewardship because as a body, we've always believed that God will take care of the income that is needed. So, the first statement is believing God will provide, we, number two, budget what is spent. I won't be long in this point because Zach will be long. He looked at me like pensively, long enough in his. Giving is only half of the stewardship program at Bluegrass. The other half is spending those resources responsibly. The purpose of this evening is to discuss our 23 annual budget. We could easily call this evening your money being put to work in God's work. Zach will go through the budget in a few moments, but our philosophy of budgeting is deep-seated in my heart. I've always believed... Little is much when God is in it. That principle is pr- drawn from Proverbs, and it's good for finances. Really, it's good for any area of our life. Here's what the proverb says in Proverbs 16 and verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. In other words, I have never cared what we give, just that we give, and I've cared that what is given is handled in a righteous and right way. You might be able to say that verse this way. You don't need to do, you don't need a lot. Excuse me, to do good for God's glory. We have increasingly seen God reward our church for faithful stewardship of the resources that He has given us. Now, look at these next couple slides. I want to show them to you. This was 2008's balance sheet. We started the church August of two thousand eight. Now, some of you like me, you may not be able to see it. This is old. This was the statement that I had to give the church that sent me out in Fairfax, Virginia. They supported me for the first year for a salary. These are the actual numbers that I would have to send back to them because they were paying for my salary and they wanted to make sure that we as a body got established. I sent these back to them as a reporting system. And that's the only reason I still have them. Poor Zach last, uh, probably four or five months ago, started saying, I'm going to start digging through all of the old giving statements. I'm like, good luck. I know we had enough. I knew where it was. Some of you get nervous when I talk like this. Like, I don't know how to manage money. I'm very good at managing my money. I've been very good at managing the church's money. I simply don't love it. Uh, I don't embrace it as others (coughs) in this place do. Having said that, this is our reporting. In the first four four months, go back to that other slide real quick. We had $18,882 given in four months. Hallelujah. I mean, that was a baby church. Brian, how many people were in church back then? Yeah, two handfuls, that's a good answer. It wasn't much, but little is much when God is in it. The next year, 2009, this is the first full year, the next slide there, Melanie, I think we have, this is the first full year, $62,239. The church actually started paying me a salary in July of 2009. My first salary from this church was $500 a month with with my insurance being paid. And the reason they did that is because Drew was born that year, and the church family said, Pastor, you can't not get paid and not have insurance. I think it was Mark and Billy and Jason, maybe Brian too, that just kind of pinned me down and said, that's not doable. You're not going to survive. Now, the next chart is a wonderful thing to look at. I think there it is. This is the growth. What we've budgeted year after year after year. Two thousand eight on the, uh, the two thousand nine. Excuse me. On the left end, going to the right end, we budgeted fifty-seven thousand dollars in giving. In two thousand ten, we budgeted eighty-four thousand dollars. In two thousand eleven, it went down. They must have not liked me. They budgeted seventy-eight thousand dollars. The truth of the matter is, we had some expansions and some buildings and some things in a rented space that we were doing. 2012, it grew to 134,000. We brought on our second full-time staff member in 2012. 2013, it grew to 192,000. In 14, it was 254. In 2015, it was 345. 2016, 370. 2017, 406. 2018, 434. 2019, 426 thousand dollars was our annual budget. 2020, it was 454 thousand. 2021, 433 thousand. By the way, we had some staff departures going to plant churches or to go do other things, so we didn't need to spend as much. The administrative budget was becoming the driver of it. 2022, this year that we're in, our budget is $586,000, and next year's budget is going to be, as you can see on the far end, $631,000. Zach's like, why can't we just vote on it now? (laughs) Here's the point. When we budget properly, we can, number three, balance what is not needed. You say, wait, what, what is not needed? Look, once you go beyond the budget, then you're starting to build reserves. You're building surplus. What does a church do with surplus? Anybody ever thought about that? We'll we'll talk about that when we get to the end, our fourth point this this evening. Here's what Proverbs 27 and verse 23 says. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. I can tell you that while I am good with personal finance and I've been good with the church finance, it is not a passion of mine. But I can tell you, it is of Zach's. (laughs) He has a business degree and he loves it. He and Mike are going to lunch a lot because Mike's got a good business mind and they are eating up whatever they're eating up and then having great conversations. Mike's just giving me the look right now. What do we do when we give more than we spend? I know, that is a novel concept. If someone could just teach our government that, We'd probably be in better shape as a country. The answer, by the way, is found in several financial policies that we've adopted over the years. I can tell you that in 2009, with a total annual budget of $52,000 for our first full year, I never believed we would give more than that we budgeted, but we did. And we did that very year. That's an exciting thing. So how do we balance... What we spend once our core responsibilities have been met. Well, here's three priorities, and you can write them down. I did not put them in your notes. I probably should have. You can write it down. First priority, establish cash reserves. Can I tell you a secret? What we do corporately is not different than what you should do personally. I'm not going all Dave Ramsey on you here, but you should develop your cash reserves. And so, that is our first priority. The second priority, after we've established well enough our cash reserves, is eliminate debts. The borrower is always servant to the lender. The Bible teaches that, and none of us has ever been able to violate that truism. Third, engage in investment. Now, we'll talk about that in our uh, our fourth point this evening. What does it mean to engage in investment? We don't mean like the financial markets. Buy you some crypto. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about. If you did, I'm sorry for you. I also have Monopoly money you can buy. (laughs) Somebody liked my joke. I didn't even pay her. Look, in these priorities, so long as we have debt, the first objective for us is to pay down that debt. Right now, we have a $1.59 million loan on all of our properties. By the way... That shouldn't scare you, because our asset value, and coupled with our cash reserve, we have $2.4 million in equity. That's a good thing. We are well in the black as a church. And I can tell you that well over 72% of all churches are in the red. and Banks don't like them. And when we come to the banks, the banks love us because we pay our debts. We pay on time early and retire the mortgage quickly. What do we do then, or how do we know what costs on the scale of our church that are variable, how do we know how we plan? And the answer is, we start working through a plan itself. We have a policy to address what we do when cash reserves reach a particular amount. When we have six months expenses, you'll see what those are, it's around $42,000 a month. When we have six months expenses in the bank, somebody quick, tell me what that math is. Six times 40 is... $240,000 in the bank in cash reserve, then our policy that we have written is we will begin accelerating our debt payment by 10% each month. In other words, we'll pay an extra 10% each month to pay down our debt. Why? Because that's a good financial policy. In other words, we balance what is not spent on a monthly basis. We don't just say, well, pastor needs something new. Let's go get him something new. That's a terrible way to live because I'm not always going to be the pastor here. We will always balance the books and use the funds given beyond our needs because the great curse for many a church is once they've paid off their note, people stop giving to the Lord and the work begins to die and dry up. The fourth thing that we would do then is benevolence. Be benevolent with the surplus. What do you do when there are no more debts? As I joked in my notes, most churches say, go buy some jets. We don't need any airplanes. We need to make sure that we do good for the gospel's sake and for the kingdom's expansion with that which is surplus. We are to take any excess, small or large, and use it to advance the gospel and to administer God's grace within our community. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter number 5. I want you to actually see this passage as we read it together this evening. 1 Timothy chapter number 5. It's a tough passage. Because a lot of churches miss it. The Bible says in verse 1, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. Boy, if we have ever become disrespectful, this is the age of it. Paul is telling Timothy there needs to be a dignified respect and honor for those who are established within the church. Verse number three, honor widows that are widows indeed or in truth, in fact. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable for God. In other words, if there's widows in your church, then the, church is, or the first responsibility falls to their family to take care of them. But we keep reading. Now, she that is a widow indeed and desolate, boy, that's a tough word. If we had extra time tonight, we'd talk about it trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. In other words, if there is a widow and she's out living in excess, good luck to her. And These things give in charge that they may be blameless, but if any provide not for his own and, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old, having been the wife of one man. Now he's talking about how and who we care for. So if we're going to start caring for widows, they're going to have to be over 60, according to that. Or at least there's going to have to be mitigating circumstances that apply as well. We'll look in the book of James in just a moment. Verse 10, well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work, but the younger widows refuse for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ. In other words, hey, church, I expect something of you. This happens in our culture with our government. And he's warning that this would happen within a church. They will marry. Verse 12, having damnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And withal, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers, also in busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Man, this is not politically correct. It's biblically correct, though. For some are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believe have widows, let them relieve them, or that means take care of them, and let not the church be charged that it may may relieve them that are widows indeed. Now, here's the truth for tonight. We are responsible for taking, if we have excess and surplus, if we have no debts of this church, what would we do with $600,000 in budgeted or potential giving next year? Well, we wouldn't be paying debt, we wouldn't be paying our mortgage, which which eats up easily a hundred plus thousand dollars of our expenses, we could find a lot of good that we could do in our community, starting in the household of faith. Here's what James says in James 1 in verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the fatherless. The Father is this, to visit, that means to go and see, to go and relieve them of their burdens, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You know, a lot of times we hear a lot of preaching about being unspotted from the world, but we don't hear a lot of preaching about going and taking care of people in their needs. Tom Rainier, who focuses on churches and the health of churches and growth, wrote in his book, Autopsy of a Dead Church, he states in that book that one of the symptoms of a dying church is that the percentage of the budget for members' needs keeps increasing while the money earmarked for outreach keeps decreasing. I would only make this argument as a church planner to Mr. Rainier, and I agree with him on most of his points, and this one as well. That a church plant will necessarily, in their early life, spend money growing, but there comes a point where the use of those resources needs to pivot and go outward rather than inward. And I believe, as a church, we're nearing that point as we continually grow. What if we had no debt on this building or any buildings? What would we do with the giving of 500000 or 750000 or a million dollars a year to the work of the Lord? when no debts were present. This is where, as believers, we can begin to dream biblical dreams. We can see how we help in our community. The problem so often is churches are always worried about paying more or doing more internally. They don't actually look at Jerusalem and Samaria. Here's our answer. We've already begun to answer some of these in some of the leadership group meetings that we've had. We would plant more churches. Do we need to be a church of 1,500 or 2,000? Well, we'll never get there. Three years ago, we were a church of 120. Now we're a church of nearly 300. We keep that trend up. We'll be over 500 in two years, and we'll be nearing 750 by percentages within five or six years. We need to start thinking. We need to start planning. We need to start doing some good Bible stewardship. What do we do with excess or surplus? The answer is plant more churches. It means we could support more missionaries. What if a missionary picked up the phone and called us and said, we could build a building right now. We just need $100,000. Well, look, if we don't have to pay $100,000 in our mortgage, we could probably sign on to help. We might even be able to sign on to underwrite that. Well, Pastor, I just don't know if that's good use of our money. Well, it's not yours. And it's not mine. It's God's. And if we can be a help, we ought to be a help. We could truly explore the ways that we can do good, show benevolence within our, within our own community. How could, how could we benefit widows and fatherless? How could we benefit the community through education? How could we show benevolence in counseling and various therapeutic means for addiction and the like? A church is a gospel giver, and that gospel giving does not happen exclusively at a Sunday morning worship though it always is to happen there. The point is, with God, you can plan and purpose to be benevolent, for it is His very nature, even when we are still growing out of certain phases of who we are. Our plans for benevolence are still developing. We are a church that's still maturing. Through 14 years of budget meetings, we have worked faithfully towards financial independence. As we grow, that reality will come as to how we can truly benefit all of our community. In a very real sense, as we give to the Lord through obedience, we can see what He would have us to do in a benevolent way. So in closing this evening, our philosophy is straightforward. Believing God will provide, we budget what is spent, balance what is not, and are benevolent with the surplus. So I want to transition then to Zach. God has blessed us with men in the church, family who know and help with the financial structure, but God has uniquely blessed us with a faithful staff member whom God has set in in his place, and I would add whom he has set in her place in the areas of finances here in the church. We've always had this, by the way. God has always provided someone with business acumen. I remember in the earliest days going and sitting with Billy Marshall in his office and saying, Billy, you're the businessman. I have a couple questions. Well, pastor, this is probably how it would work. (laughs) And no, that idea won't work. (laughs) Very simple conversations we had back then. Brian Fulcher was our finance pastor for many years. He was a superb money manager. He was a blessing from God and a true resource to the church. Pam Lindner has served a much-needed administrative and oversight role since early 2020, assisting me in the management of our church resources. One of the goals in hiring Zach, whether I told him and Sarah that or not when they came here, was that he would use his business degree to advance and enhance our solid financial foundations that have already been established. As I said at the beginning, God willing, next year, I may not even have to stand up here and preach to you. And all God's children said, hey, man, (laughs) right? That's what you're supposed to say. I can tell you this, Zach is excellent in knowledge and understanding of the trends and analysis. And coupled to the administrative assistance that Pam provides, we have very little to worry about when it comes to where, when, and how we spend the given resources of this place. I also want to extend a thank you to Mark Woods, to Brother Mike Duffy, to Brian Lawson, and to my dad, and to others for their combined efforts over the years to provide member support and oversight to the staff. These layers of protection are good for a healthy church. The staff actually benefits the most, not the membership, because there's a layer of protection. We never have to worry about a staff member dipping their hands in the pocketbook. None of us have the ability to write checks around here. We actually have to come to the membership for that. There are men in the membership who are trustees of the church, and they have to do that process for us. The integrity of these men and their willingness to give of their time to serve the Lord by serving the church is certainly appreciated by me. With that, I will hush. Zach, if you...